following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Turn to Psalm 89 today. Praise Lord for the power of the cross of Christ and all He did for us when He died. So Psalm 89 today, you know, it's interesting... um, I could probably do something like this every week. I don't do it every week, but there's so many interesting um, you know, dates from last year that, that are pressed into my memory, uh, maybe probably more than yours, but this weekend marks an interesting um, just anniversary for me. So a year ago, we were doing three morning services, uh, 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11 a.m., and the 4th of July weekend was the week that, uh, that the governor... Uh, forbade singing, uh, congregational singing, and um, and so a lot of you came in here really angry <laughs> that Sunday, and uh, it was a it was an interesting day. And uh, one one of the things I I mean look back on and it's just uh, it's interesting times. I so appreciate uh, how the Lord protected us and and kept our church united. It's interesting to hear just other pastors talk about uh, how. Uh, how divisive COVID became for them and some of the nasty things that uh, went on. And God was very good to us. And here we are today by God's grace. And uh, God has been uh, just marvelously kind to us as a church. And uh, so praise the Lord for his goodness to us. And, and uh, we have a lot to be grateful for. Well, Psalm 89 uh, is, uh, we're not in the Sermon on the Mount today. Of course, today is the 4th of July. And so I wanted to take a break and, and just uh, uh, do something related to the day. And, uh, you know, I just I want to say here at the outset that, that I do believe uh, that we ought to approach today uh, primarily focused on giving thanks for everything that God has done for our nation. You know, God has been very good to the United States of America in multiple, multiple ways. And I think it's always good to highlight, especially as a church, just how God has used uh, the freedoms and the prosperity that we have as a nation for the advance of the gospel. I mean, it would be incredible uh, to ponder how many, I mean, who knows, millions, maybe it's, I don't know, uh, maybe it's in the billions of dollars that have gone into missions from this country and uh, how many places around the world uh, the gospel has been heard and believed and churches have been established because of the American church. And uh, our freedoms and our prosperity have been a major tool that God has used uh, for that. And so, so, yes, the United States of America has problems. It always has had problems. Uh, we were never perfect. Uh, but for the most part, we can give thanks that the vision of our founding fathers was very wise and uh, very consistent with uh, biblical values. And so, uh, we should be proud of our heritage and, and we should give thanks uh, that we are citizens of, of, of what I believe is still the greatest nation uh, on, on this earth. And we are we are we are blessed uh, to be uh, to be here. You know, but but even as we we give thanks uh, for uh, for those things, uh, it, it might be that that as you give thanks for all those things, there's a twinge of it, it feels a bit bittersweet because our nation, while we have a great heritage, is rapidly changing, and I think we would all agree that most of that change is not for the better. Uh, know that instead we are increasingly a nation of bold rebellion against God and His Word. 
And, and as a result, uh, the, the future of our nation is, is a little bit murky, right? And, and we, uh, we have questions about where our nation's going, what our freedoms are going to look like in years ahead, and, and many other things. So, so the question then is, is, how do we respond to that? How do we process biblically uh, those, those griefs and those fears uh, about what is going on in, in our country? And, and I'd like to answer that question today, uh, not fully, but at least in part, uh, by looking at an inspired national lament. And so we're here in Psalm 89, and uh, we don't know exactly the context uh, when, when this psalm was written. The psalm says it was written by Ethan the Ezraite, and uh, if that is the Ethan who is mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, then then he would have been an official under King Solomon. So if it's the same Ethan, uh, then then he probably wrote this after the death of Solomon uh, during the reign of his son, King Rehoboam. And if you remember the history of King Rehoboam, he was an arrogant man who uh, ignored the counsel and under his reign, the kingdom of Israel uh, went from, from the glories it enjoyed during the reign of Solomon to being divided into two nations. And, and as well, Rehoboam endured several uh, very uh, embarrassing defeats in battle. So it was a dark time. It's also possible uh, that, that this is a different author who wrote this psalm, and uh, maybe he wrote uh, during the days of another a wicked king of Judah, or, or maybe even this psalm was written after the Babylonians came in and removed the Davidic line altogether uh, from the throne there in Jerusalem. Uh, but regardless, it's a dark time. Now, just to, to give you a, a feel for that, a look over at verse 38. The psalmist says to God, But you have cast off and abhorred, abhorred us, really. You have been furious with your anointed, speaking there of the Davidic king. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. There is a reproach. He is a reproach to his neighbors. So it's a dark time. Israel is in shambles. The Davidic king has been embarrassed, and the psalmist here, who is, who is a believer in the Lord, who, who is someone who trusts in the promises of God, he is hurting, and he is very confused about what God is doing and, and where all of this is going. And, and God put this psalm in the Bible to set a pattern for us of how we should process similar types of grief and confusion. And what do we do when we don't understand what God is doing and where it's going? And I think specifically, uh, it, it provides a good parallel for how we process grief and confusion about our country. Now, now, I do want to be very clear at the outset here that the United States of America is not the new Israel. You know, so sometimes uh, there's a lot of sermons probably around our country that will be preached today uh, where, where people take promises to Israel or, or things about Israel, and, and people just take them and, and just you know, make them exactly talking about the United States of America. And that's not the case. All right? God has not given to the United States of America the same promises that He made to Israel. Uh, we are not the new Israel. And, and the world does not revolve around the United States of America. 
like we sometimes like to believe. God is doing lots of things all over the world that have nothing to do with us. So, so I, I think it's important to be very clear about that. So, so Psalm 89 is not directly about us, but it still has a lot to say about how we should respond to the spiritual decline of our nation and, and to whatever other uh, confusing, difficult hardships that, that life may bring. I think you could apply this to any sort of grief or any sort of confusion. And the psalm here consists of, of three really distinct units, uh, which I'd like to use to give three challenges regarding how we should respond when our circumstances seem to contradict the character and the promises of God. What do you do when you look out at life and, and it just doesn't seem to fit who we know God to be and, and what He has said He is going to do? And so the first challenge is we must remember God's character. Remember God's character. Now, a fascinating aspect of this psalm is the stark difference among these three units to the psalm. And in particular, uh, the closing lament. We read a couple of verses in the closing lament just a moment ago. Uh, They are very just dark and uh, not in a sinful way, but just the author is confused, he's grieving, but that's very different than the spirit we see at the opening of the psalm. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 18. It says in Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. Some of you might have grown up singing a song built on that verse. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness shall be established in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And in your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord. And our King to the Holy One of Israel. Those verses are obviously very cheery and positive, aren't they? And if you were reading this psalm for the very first time, you'd never read it before, uh, you would assume by the time you get to the end of verse 18 that the psalmist is writing during some sort of very happy, uh, blessed occasion, that that he's giving thanks for, for some wonderful time. But of course, we know from later on in the psalm that that's not the case. 
And really, that adds a whole different level of depth and significance to what he says here. And in this passage, I'd like to highlight four attributes of God that the psalmist rejoices in. So first of all, he begins in verse 1 by declaring his intent to sing of the Lord's mercy and the Lord's faithfulness. You know, and so the first attribute is, is God's mercy. And aren't you thankful that God is merciful? Without God's mercy, all of us here would be hopelessly lost. And, and you know, mercy is a particularly valuable attribute of God to, to meditate on uh, when we are in times of, of grief and sorrow or struggling with discontentment. Because so often we think that we deserve prosperity and blessing, right? You ever gone through a hard time and, and, and maybe you verbalized it or, or maybe you've thought it, you look up at God and say, God, I don't deserve this. I deserve something better. And God's mercy, though, reminds us that any good thing I enjoy, any good thing, is better than I deserve. And when we stop focusing on all that is wrong and instead choose to focus on, on how God has blessed me despite my sin, despite my failure, then, then we always have more than enough reason to sing of the mercies of the Lord. So, so give thanks today for, for God's mercy. And then second, uh, the psalmist remembers God's faithfulness. Now, now, I find that one particularly fascinating uh, because, because he ends the psalm by, by essentially asking, is God faithful, right? Are you going to keep your covenant that you have made? And yet here, as he's struggling to, to believe God's promise, he anchors his mind in what he knows to be true. That, that despite what circumstances might seem to indicate at times, God never changes. He, uh, he never breaks a promise. He will always be the same. And so as you think about whether it's the United States of America or you think about uh, what some other circumstance in your life, you may not always know why God does what He does. And you may not have any idea what He's going to accomplish or how it's going to turn out in the end. But we know that God is faithful. And we know that God will always do everything that he has said. And that's, it's so important that we anchor our minds in that reality because we do live in dark times. And it might be easy to look out and think that God has abandoned us. And, and, and the evil's going to win in the end, and so we might as well just cower in the corner, hide ourselves as much as we possibly can, and we need to remember that God is faithful. God is faithful. And the same goes for, for, for every other challenge that we face. Now, sometimes you, you go through hard times and it feels like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is just darkness unending. But God is faithful. And you can trust Him in, in, in all times and in all situations to fulfill His promise. So God is merciful, God is faithful, and then third, uh, verses 5 through 10, praise God that He is sovereign. And they do so, uh, first of all, by, by remembering 
uh, or by comparing God to the heavenly host, the, the angels. And so the Bible tells us you know, that, the, that many of the angels are incredibly strong. You know, Satan is, is, is one of God's creations, and he has incredible power, and, and he is incredibly smart. But notice the rhetorical question in verse 6. Who in the heavens, speaking there of the angelic host, can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? And the answer is, no one. Even the mightiest angels are nothing in comparison to the might of God. And in verses 9 and 10, uh, then turn to the great powers of the earth. He says in verse 9, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. You know, uh, we don't maybe think this way so much today, but in the ancient world, the seas were a very scary place. They didn't have Doppler radar to tell them when storms were coming and their ships were a lot smaller than the ones that uh, people take out today. And so people died on the sea a lot. And, 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 and intimidating storms were a scary thing. But the psalmist says, God rules the raging sea. And he can speak a word, and it is still. Of course, Jesus literally did that later on in his ministry. And you might wonder what, what he means by Rahab in verse 10. And that's a, uh, the word here can be used for a variety of things, but it seems here in this context, it's not talking about the woman Rahab. Uh, it's talking instead about uh, it was a symbol for the nation of Egypt. Of course, Egypt was one of the most powerful nations on earth at this time. God says even the greatest nations of the world are no match for God. He can crush them with the simplest word. And again, it's so important that we remember God's sovereignty in the face of dark times. So often we feel as if chance and chaos and evil are winning the day. But Isaiah 40 verse 15 says, The nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scale. And the same goes for, for whatever else you're facing. There is no power in heaven or on earth that can defy the sovereignty of God. He is in control, and He is stronger than every force in this world. And then finally, the fourth attribute that the psalmist mentions is God's goodness in verses 14 through 18. And so verse 14 declares, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Aren't you thankful for the truths in that verse? That, that we don't always understand what God is doing. We don't always see his purpose. But we know that God is a God of righteousness, justice, mercy, and truth. And therefore, no matter what else might be going on in life, verse 16 says of God's people, in your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. But God is good. You know, and, and, and of course, when he says that, when he says that that God's people rejoice in Him all day long, he, doesn't, he clearly does not mean by that that we don't have hard times. And the ending of this psalm is clear that God doesn't expect us to walk around and pretend like everything is hunky-dory when it's not, right? 
But, but even in the midst of, of the darkest of times, God is faithful. And, and verses 1 through 18 teach that even when life is difficult, we cannot spend our days moaning and complaining in despair. No, we ought to, ought to be known for, for thankfulness, joy, hope, because our God is good at all times, and our God is filled with righteousness, justice, mercy, and truth. So the first challenge of this psalm is to remember God's character. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is sovereign, and he is good. And it's important that we keep that as an anchor, because if you look at our nation through the lens of the media or, or, or the, the angry, loud mouth at work, that, then you are just going to despair. But if you look at life through the lens of our great God, who is all the things of the, that are mentioned in the psalm and so much more, then, there, then we have reason for hope. And as he says there, we can, even in the darkest times, rejoice all day long. So we need to rejoice today. So, so the first reminder here, or the first challenge of the text, is remember God's character. And then the second challenge the psalmist gives is to remember God's promise. So let's go ahead and read on. We'll read verses 19 through 37. So it says in verse 19, uh, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. All right, And so all this is a reflection on the, on the Davidic covenant. He says, I have found my servant David with my, or I have, with my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foe before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in his name my horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father my God and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep with him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. So, so these verses, again, they're, they're a reflection on the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant is recorded for us in, in second, or, uh, yeah, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the Davidic covenant is, is really, it's central to the Old Testament. It really is very important, and it's central uh, to the hope of Israel. I mean, in the days of Jesus, Israel is looking for a Messiah who is going to do what, 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 what God promised to David that one of his descendants would accomplish. And, and, and this covenant was particularly significant to Israel because 
You know, remember Israel's first king, right? Israel's first king was King Saul. And, and, and just like David, God chose Saul. And just like David, Saul started pretty well. He, he obeyed the Lord and won some great victories. But of course, ultimately, his pride and his hard-heartedness drove Solomon, or Saul, not Solomon, well, Solomon sort of too, uh, to, to rebel against God and to become deeply bitter. And what did God do to Saul? He rejected Saul as king, and his reign ended in humiliation and, and defeat and embarrassment. So then, you know, because Saul, God rejects Saul, he chooses David, right? So, so David is his choice to replace Saul, and, um, and David also started well. But, but put yourself in David's shoes or, or in the shoes of those that were trusting in him. And, and how does David know that he's not going to trip up like Saul and end up being rejected by God the way Saul was? Or, or even if, if David was faithful, now how does Israel know that, that his descendants are, are all, you know, his son and his grandson, his great-grandson and so forth, how do they know that, that they're going to be faithful to the Lord and, and, and that, that they're going to... Uh, be good and, and serve the Lord, and, and that God's not going to you know, thrash them too and, and set them aside the way he did to Saul. Well, those are important and very valid fears. And so God answered them in resounding fashion with the Davidic covenant. And so in verses 20 through 29 of our psalm here, they detail the promises that God gave to David and his descendants. So God said to David, I am going to conquer all your enemies. And, uh, and I'm going to give you a great kingdom. He says in verse 25 that, that you and your sons will rule over the sea and, and over the rivers. So, so David was going to have a vast, massive kingdom. And, uh, and God says in verses 28 and 29 that my mercy I will keep with him forever. That's a big deal because God removed his mercy from Saul. But he told David, no matter what happens, my mercy will be with you forever. But, you know, that's great. Uh, but an Israelite might think, well, well, I know that God's going to keep up his end of the bargain. But, but what if David sins? Or what if Solomon sins? Or what if one of his descendants sins? And, and God just, again, just removes them and sets them aside. Well, verse 32 says, if they sin, I will punish their transgression and their iniquity with stripes. But then he says, nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant, I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So God told David, no matter how you sin, no matter what horrible things you may do, and some of David's descendants did horrible things, Ahaz and Manasseh specifically, did horrible things during their reign. But God says, no matter what, I will not remove my blessing from your line the way I did to Saul. So God corrected them. They endured terrible judgments, but God never abandoned them. And someday, of course, Christ is going to return, and Christ will do for David and for Israel everything that God promised them. God will keep his covenant. But you might be sitting there and thinking, well, that's great for Israel. That's great for David. But what does that mean for us? Because again, we're not Israel. 
So, so the simple answer is, is that I believe that, that God preserved this psalm for us to set an example of how we need to respond when we are enduring confusion and especially times of national decay. And that is that we need to anchor our minds in the promises of God, not in the hopelessness of this world. So is our nation in bad shape? Yes. And it doesn't appear to be getting any better. And and God has not promised to revive America. We have no idea where where this nation will ultimately go. But, But he has promised a lot of things to his children. He has promised that he will keep us through every trial and every temptation. He has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And there is no force on earth that can stand against that. You know, some of, the, I mean, the, some of the places in the world where God is doing the greatest works are places where there is the most hostility against His Word. God keeps His promise to the church. God will uh, bring glory to Himself. And someday, He's going to resurrect His people from the grave. Someday, Christ is going to conquer every enemy. He is going to crush the head of Satan. And we will reign with Him in righteousness and glory. And no matter what else is going on in your life, those things are all true. They are all true. And it's up to us to rehearse those truths just like the psalmist. Don't let yourself be consumed by the the narrative of defeat and and, and sorrow that that is all around us everywhere. In the media... You know, with, with other people all around us. No, I mean, stay encouraged. See everything that God is doing. Keep your eyes on the promises that He has given. And, and live your life not, you know, moaning and growing. You know, you're Eeyore. You're always under a rain cloud, sad and torn up. No, live your life with great expectation, great anticipation of God's mighty works in, in this life and in the life to come. God is enough. And our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the next. So live in light of the promises of God, not in light of the darkness of this age. So remember God's promises. And then the third challenge that the psalmist gives us is to bring your questions to God. Bring your questions to God. Let's read the remainder of the psalm, uh, picking up in verse 38. It says, But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his stronghold to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Selah. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, 
how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Now, it's very important, again, that we recognize that the stark shift in mood between verse 37 and verse 38, right? You know, because at the end of verse 37, there's, there's bright hope. God has made these incredible promises to David. And then he turns around in verse 38 and says, but you have cast off and abhorred. So, so there is a stark shift in the, in, the psalm, in the psalm here. He moves from hope to grief over the current state of the Davidic line and over what it means for the nation of Israel. And he doesn't pull any punches, does he? You know, he, the situation is bleak. And, and, you know, I mean, imagine what it would be like to, to be in, in this sort of situation, you know, where, where, where Israel's military is apparently in, in shambles. They're not able to defend themselves, so he mentions how enemies can just come in and take advantage of the Israelite people without any consequences. And so, so this is a situation here where you're, you're, I mean, probably a horrible time. Times like this are times of famine, starvation. Enemies come in and, you know, they do horrible things to women and children. But what is most appalling to the psalmist is the fact that it seems to defy everything he just rehearsed in verses 1 through 37 about who God is and about his nature. And, uh, and notice, and, and the psalmist doesn't hide from, from, from the, the conflict between what he just said and his reality. I mean, look at the first line of verse 39. He says, you have renounced the covenant of your servant. Now, he doesn't mean that that's literally so, but that's what it looks like to him. It looks like God has abandoned them. And that's a serious charge, isn't it? Based on who God is and based on the unconditional nature of his covenant. And as a result, in verses 46 through 49, he asks a series of painful questions. He just says, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? You know, and then he says, you know, God, you know, you know, maybe, maybe you plan to fix all of this in 100 years, but, but I'm not going to live 100 years. He's probably an older man at this point, and he says, I, 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 want, I want to see the light. I, I want you to solve this before I'm dead. So don't forget me, Lord, and, and let this go on past my death. He's struggling, and he wonders if, if suffering is all that he's going to know the rest of his life. That's, that's really tough, isn't it? It's one thing to go through a dark, deep trial if you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, or to go through something painful and you can see the purpose and you can see the resolution. You know, like I had a couple knee surgeries uh, a few years back and, and it was miserable, but I knew at the end I'd be able to run and do all the things that I used to do. But it's a different thing when you're going through hardship and you have no idea and really little hope that it's going to turn out well. And as a result, he asks his primary question in verse 49. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Have you ever felt that way? Like, Lord, what are you doing? I mean, you've been so kind in the past, 
but it seems like your kindness has disappeared. And, and what is especially troubling is that it looked like God had abandoned his covenant with David. And, and that's a big deal, right? Like, not just for, for uh, the life of the psalmist, but, but for the nature of God and the nature of his promises. If God has broken his covenant that he said was an everlasting covenant, and that means that God is not the God of the Bible. So these are serious, serious matters. And then he closes with a request in verses 50 and 51. And, and I do want to just mention at this point that most people believe that verse 52 is, is not so much the conclusion of Psalm 89 as it is the conclusion of the third book of the Psalms. So really the end of the Psalm is with verse 51. And so he just prays, Remember, O Lord, remember your servant, remember all that we are suffering, and please act according to your character and promise. And he says, Lord, they're blaspheming you. They're, 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 they're tromping your name in the dirt. So please fight for your glory and fight for your people. So, so in sum, the psalmist here concludes by expressing his heartache and the questions to the Lord. I mean, the, the, the contrast between verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known his faithfulness to all generations. To the ending of the psalm is pretty stark, isn't it? And, um, and so he's hurting. And, and he doesn't ignore his feelings. He doesn't pretend like they're not there. He doesn't, you know, put some plastic smile on his face to make, you know, make, try and convince God that everything is okay. He's struggling. He, he comes to God respectfully, right? And, and he does so honestly. I mean, he's not screaming and yelling at God and bashing God in this psalm because, I mean, no matter how you feel, it is never right to, to blaspheme and dishonor God. So he comes respectfully but honestly, seeking biblical answers. He doesn't run to the media. He doesn't run to the guy down at the coffee shop that thinks he knows everything. He runs to the Lord, and he leans on what God has said about who he is and what God has promised. So, so what can we take away from this psalm for ourselves? Well, I'd like to close with three applications. The first one is God cares about our struggles. God cares about our struggles. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. Just, just one that, that I think is worth highlighting is that, that many atheists today uh, would, would, would like to believe, or they're going to argue, that, that, that the God of the Bible cannot exist because the Bible says He is good and sovereign and the world is filled with evil and suffering. And, and if the God of the Bible was real, all this stuff over here could not exist at the same time. And, and, you know, if that really were an unresolvable conflict for God, then the Bible would just pretend like everything's okay. You know, it would try and ignore all the evil and suffering that's taking place in the world, but the opposite is actually true. The Bible talks about evil and suffering a lot. It's filled with laments. It's filled with hard questions for God. We saw that last year time and time again, working our way through the book of Job. And God doesn't run from suffering. He addresses it over and over. And all of those times where He addresses our suffering, it reminds us that God has not distanced Himself 
from our, from our griefs. You know, God's not up in heaven, you know, watching reruns, sipping on his iced tea, you know, kind of like, you know, the phone keeps ringing. He just, you know, decline, 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 decline. I'm just going to enjoy my TV show. I mean, that's not what he's doing. He is very aware of, of our suffering, and he cares. And of course, ultimately, he entered our suffering through the person of Jesus, that, that Jesus came into our world, and he suffered, and he died our death on the cross. And the very fact that this psalm is in the Bible is a statement to us from God. I know that life is hard, and you don't always understand what I'm doing, but I care, and I will be faithful. So God cares about our struggles. And secondly, faith doesn't need happy endings. Faith doesn't need happy endings. I find it very fascinating, you know, just from a literary type standpoint, that the psalm never resolves the conflict. I mean, it ends, it ends with the psalmist just praying, you know, Lord, I don't know what's going on, please do something. And, um, and there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Of course, we can't ultimately read the mind of the author. But, but I think the way the psalm ends, for one, just preserves the raw emotion that he feels. You know, if you have a happy ending, a happy ending tends to make us forget the, the pain and the confusion of it all. But really, the pain and the confusion is a big part of God's message in this psalm. And, and so that heaviness is something that, that God wants us to feel and He wants us to sympathize. But as well, the fact that, that God doesn't resolve it, I think is a reminder to us to walk by faith. You know, that, that, that we don't always know why. We don't know why our nation is in such an evil state. We don't know why God doesn't send another revival the way he did in the days of of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. We don't know what the future holds. And and certainly, we'd love to have answers, right? But, But we don't need them. We don't need answers because we trust the Lord. You know, faith is the evidence of things not seen. So, so, so I don't have to know what's happening in the future. All I have to know is God. And when you have faith in Him, you don't have to have a happy ending in this life. Because we have Him. And so, faith doesn't need happy endings. Third conclusion is use temporal hardships to refocus on eternal joys and eternal purposes. That's a little wordy. Use temporal hardships to refocus on eternal joys and eternal purposes. Now, now folks, I I want to be clear that we should desire righteousness, freedom, prosperity, all those things that that we love to continue in our nation. We're not masochists. We, We don't revel in life being miserable, all right? And, uh, and so we should want those things to exist. I think we also understand very well that in the hands of sinners, God's blessings tend to turn into things that we fall in love with instead of God Himself. And, and we all tend, when, when life is easy, when life is good, our prayer lives tend to go down, our dependence on the Lord tends to go down, and... Um, and, and when hardship comes, it drives us to our knees. 
You know, and God refines us in the heat of the fire. So, so as we face the future of our nation, we really have two options. I mean, we can obsess over everything that's wrong, be angry, depressed, despairing, grouchy, or we can use all of it to refine our focus on the things that matter, to focus our attention on the Lord, His character, and His eternal promise. And so, to, conclu- to close today, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And really, I think we need to embrace the spirit we see in the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want to read Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. It says there, These all died in faith, speaking of the patriarchs, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And may God help us to live with that focus. Our city is not here. Our city is with Christ. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank you for your compassion and care for us. And thank you, Lord, that we can anchor our hearts in the promises and in the truth of your word. Lord, please help us today and every day to trust you and to walk in the grace and in the strength that you provide. And Father, I pray that your spirit would give us faith to believe everything your word says about you and every promise that you have given. And may we press forward by faith trusting in you and you alone. In Jesus' name.